0: All right, let's bow for a word of prayer, and we'll continue in part two of a series that I began last weekend called Spiritual Warfare, and it actually goes very well with this theme of being set free and all, all of that, because we're being set free from bondages and things that have, uh, uh, that have captured our lives, and Satan's involved in all of that, and we'll be looking at that in just uh, a moment, taking it out of Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10, uh, 10 to 12, uh, but the series is going to continue and move right through the spiritual armor uh, phase as well. But this is, uh, this is part two today. And so, as we do, let's just calm our hearts right now before the Lord and just very intentionally ask Him to speak to each one of us. Give us the peace that we need, all right? Father, we ask by your Spirit uh, that you would, uh, we invite you into our lives. We open the door, so to speak, as Jesus was knocking on the door there at the church and couldn't get in. We're saying we're opening the door so that you can come and fellowship with us, that you can minister to us, that you can speak to us, that you can show us things from your word that will impact uh, us and take us on another to the next step. And so we invite you examine our hearts. We invite you to respond uh, or to um, move in us. And Lord, if there's any here who don't know Jesus Christ yet, I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to take the blinders off of them so that they will see truth uh, this morning and that they would choose to receive Jesus Christ. So thank you for what you're going to do as we try to be as faithful to your word as we can, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed by saying. In Ephesians six ten to 12 again, uh, let's read this one together, all right? We, we, we uh, spoke out of this particular passage last weekend, this is part two. Let's uh, read it together, finally be strong. Here we go. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now last week I addressed the origin of evil. I addressed the devil himself, um, talked to, we spoke about him, and the channels through which he works, which are the flesh, that uncrucified self, the ego, that, uh, that rebellious part in us. And, uh, and the world, uh, not speaking of uh, oceans and rivers and stuff, but speaking of that world system and the mo- world mind, and we developed that, and we're not going to do that today. But many modern-day believers dismiss this as an irrelevant topic. But the Scriptures have much to say about the devil, our enemy. The devil is named 117 times, I counted myself, in the New Testament, using names such as the devil, Satan, serpent, dragon, strong man, Beelzebub, evil one. In fact, there's 13 different names given him just in the New Testament uh, alone, and uh, all nine to New Testament writers speak about the devil. Jesus names him 34 times, Paul 19 times, and John 35 times. Now, uh, last week we talked a little bit about uh, we we gave a considerable A bit of time to seeing how the devil works through the world mind and he develops a world philosophy or mind in different regions of the earth and we, uh, uh, of the planet and we talked about how he's doing that even today and we used uh, concrete examples but right now I want to talk about, I want to demonstrate how it works uh, through an individual. Uh, I'm, uh, I asked uh, Stefan if I could, uh, uh, who was leading the retreat last night, and uh, I asked him if I could use him as an example, and he, he gave me full permission. He was under attack one month after salvation, and uh, Stefan was uh, saved in August 2004 from uh, uh, f- uh, and was transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But one month later, Though he was now a member of the kingdom of light, he came under huge attack by the devil or demons. He called, I'll never forget, I was in a, I was in a uh, meeting, a staff meeting, and uh, I was in a staff meeting and he called and he was extremely agitated and, and uh, things were not going well and he talked about the attack he was under. He could hardly see, he could hardly think. His head was spinning, his body, uh, he, he didn't have full... In complete control over it, and so we met shortly after, and I asked uh, uh, Chris, our executive pastor or my son, uh, to uh, other son to join uh, me in that particular meeting and I'll never forget the little room where we sat, we sat down and Chris and I sat down at a table, and Stefan uh, marched around the table, and he was extremely agitated and upset and, um, and loud. And so I just asked him if he would take a seat. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and I couldn't believe the response. He just stopped and looked at me and he said, I can't sit down. And uh, the moment he did that, I knew uh, that I had a real problem on my hand. I knew that we were dealing with uh, something entirely different. There wasn't just three of us in the room. Uh, there were some uh, real demonic spirits there as well. And so I named uh, who I thought was the demon because I looked at him. and He was agitated. And he, he seemed a- angry. That's how it sounded. That's how it looked like. And he's, And so I took control of the spirit of of anger, and I ordered him to uh, leave Stefan alone and let go. And I broke that. And and I ordered uh, Stefan or asked Stefan to sit down, and uh, it didn't do a thing. So I intentionally stopped and I want you to listen to the little clues along the way in this story and we're going to come back to the story later in the message at the end we're going to wrap it up and so I stopped to listen because obviously I didn't I couldn't see in the natural what was actually going on and what I thought it was it wasn't so I stopped to listen in my spirit I received a word of knowledge you only get that when you can hear God uh, scriptures talk about word of knowledge. And uh, I said, Lord, I don't have a clue who I'm dealing with here. And suddenly the word fear in capital letters formed across my mind. And I thought, fearful? He's anything but fearful. I mean, he, he, uh, he likes to fight. He's very, very strong. He's not fearful, doesn't look fearful, can't be fearful. So I waited again. I said, Lord, try again. good guess but and the and, and that word would not leave it was fear so finally uh, i just i just you know i felt a little embarrassed asking this uh, I, I i looked at Stefan who's still pacing and marching around the table i said are you afraid of anything and he looked at me and he said i haven't been so afraid in my life i went wow that's it so i took authority over the demon of of fear and i and and i stopped him and then i asked Stefan to sit down and take a seat and you know what he did he just slunk into the into the uh, chair well after that i went back to listening again i said lord what's the next step now i'm not sure which one wh- what i sh- what i'm really totally dealing with here what should i be doing next and once i had a thought confess sin well uh, Dr. Charles Kraft. years ago I read, I read a book by him, he's an excellent writer, and he he wrote about demons and that kind of stuff from Charles F- uh, Fuller Seminary, and he, uh, he said demons are like rats, and they feed on garbage, so you got to remove the garbage and you weaken them, they, they leave, you can't just keep killing rats, There's just more will come. And he said demons are a little like that, and so... I I totally understood right away what the strategy was. So I said, "Uh, "Stephan, let's pick some sins and let's get you to start confessing them." It took 20 minutes to get one sin confessed, and during that time, I would have—he would try to speak and he couldn't speak. And so then I would, uh, I would again, I'd listen, I'd say, and I'd command the demons to loosen his tongue so that he could confess sin. And then finally, he got one out, and finally we we battled to the next one. Finally got another one. It took a little bit less time, and then a little bit less time, and a little bit less time, and finally, I'll never forget what he did. He said, uh, next one, Dad. What's the next one we, we confess? <laughs> he was ready for the next, because he could tell that they were weakening in him. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's how uh, we, we uh, took care of that. Scripture says unconfessed sin gives a foothold to the enemy. According to Ephesians 4.27, we have it in the set free retreat. And so uh, that's what we did. And uh, the Holy Spirit gave us strategy through the entire thing, and through listening, we could deal with it. Now, the point of this example is simply to say this. The devil is powerful. He is real, number one, and he is powerful. At number two, that he does attack. And that simply saying, look to Jesus, just doesn't cut it. I, I hear that simplistic response from Christians a lot. And it doesn't work. And there's a reason for that. Because Jesus gave us weapons and armor for us to war against the enemy with. He doesn't do everything just for us. So we can't just say, well, i got a problem. Uh, please, Jesus, take care of it. And we pray and pray and we want. I mean, that's one of the reasons we sometimes don't get answers to our prayer because we don't do the part that we're supposed to be doing. Amen? And so it's very, very important. But we'll come to that a little bit later. Let's begin by looking at the de- uh, why the devil is powerful. Well, Satan is great in power, great in understanding, great in authority, great in the forces he can mars- uh, marshal. And the natural man is helpless alone before him. And here's why. First of all, because uh, because uh, Satan and his demons are powerful because of their innate nature. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones, who do his word obeying the voice of the word. And he's talking about angels. By creation they were made more powerful than mankind. In 2 Peter 2, uh, Peter says, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, and the context is they're greater in in a might and power than humans. That's context of that particular uh, passage. And the writer says that for the time of our earthly existence, you made them for a little while lower than the angels, though after the resurrection will be placed above them, according to 1 Corinthians 6. Now these demonic beings have great advantages over mankind. Uh, For example, their vast intellect is measurably greater than the human mind. They have the advantage of invisibility, so you don't see their attacks coming. Uh, their mobility gives them a distinct advantage. They're not wearied as we are. And their deathlessness, the fact that they don't die, gives them the advantage of thousands of years of experiencing in tempting and attacking human beings. When, God, when allowed by God, they even have the ability to influence the material world. Job's children were killed by a uh, gale force winds that were attributed to Satan, according to Job chapter 1. Consider the herd of swine. Demons uh, uh, drove into the sea in Matthew chapter 8, uh, when Jesus let them go. And at times the devil is given permission to afflict our bodies as well. Job's boils came from Satan. Consider the boy who was possessed by a demon that threw him into the fire. Remember that story. Or how about uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh? We'll come to that a little bit later. Now, here's a little caveat, of course. Not all afflictions come from the devil. But I'm saying he has that kind of power. He has that kind of ability. And when he's trying to stop something and stop the advancement of God's kingdom or the freeing of some people, he will attack. And he typically attacks around our set free retreats. That's just natural, normal. It just happens regularly. And uh, so, uh, and think of it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. If man can invent from nature things as uh, gunpowder, how much more is Satan capable of drawing from nature's power for destructive purposes himself? The devil's power against us is really quite alarming. So, let's take a look at the second reason he's so powerful. He's powerful because of, and his demons are powerful because they're vast numbers. Using symbolic language, John wrote in Revelation 12, 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them uh, to the earth. And verse 9 of Revelation 12 identifies clearly what John meant by these stars. And let's read that passage now. It says, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that's Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, there it is, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his what? Angels, those stars, the, the third of the stars that were wiped out, symbolic language. People get so uptight about symbolic language of Revelation, but in many cases it actually tells what the symbolism means, Scripture does. And his angels were thrown down with him. And, uh, and uh, so how many angels are we talking about? When we're talking about a third and we're talking about how many angels are there in total and then how many of them does Satan have? It says about a third of them. Uh, the numbers are actually vast and innumerable. Uh, they really are. Uh, for example, uh, Revelation 5.11, and we could go to the Old Testament too. I had to take some of this out because it's just going to take too long. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering, help me, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Wow. And Satan drew off a full third. And that means that in numbers alone, they present a formidable full. So, so vast was their number that they were able to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of evil, a kingdom of darkness. And Satan has enough forces to harass the entire earth. He has troops stationed in every part of the world. There's no place you can go that he doesn't have troops. The devil could send, remember in the story of Mark chapter 5, verse 9, the man that came came crying from the tombstones when Jesus landed in the boat. And uh, Jesus talked to the spirit. That was the head demon, by the way. It, talked, it, it uses the singular and it uses the plural. And the head demon, he's talking to him, and he said, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for there were many, and then it says, in the plural, spirits. Now, if the if the uh, devil can spare so many to attack one, how many must there be on his entire role, right? Thirdly, Satan and his demons are powerful because of their unity and order. They know that unless they're united, their kingdom is finished. Jesus himself said that. He said, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? That makes a lot of sense. I wish a lot of churches understood that principle, amen? Amen. Huh? It's, it's uh, southern, uh, southern Manitoba. Huh? Right? Totalitarian movements always seek complete uniformity, uh, uniformity of outward action and even inward thought. The primary activity of demons in the world is to tempt men and women to sin and drag them off into evil too. Hatred for God and humans consumes them, and they desire to see souls damned. And for that common purpose or goal, they present a united front. So that's not because they have any love for each other, it's uh, because of the common goal. And fourth, Satan and his demons are powerful because they enslaved mankind. When Satan's mutiny was repelled, he and his defeated followers. Were cast from their heavenly privilege and position, cast from God's presence, and enraged, they cast their wicked eye upon God's good creation and determined to spoil it by any and all means. But their real prize was to mar and ruin the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind, because he had made man, or because he had made him in the image of God. And so Satan's real goal, his real prize, is us. He wants to mess it up. And that's the only explanation for the evil we see. And and with that, Satan embodied a serpent, began his beguiling work against Adam and Eve. And right here, we come to the crux of the matter. When man and woman, when the man and the woman listened to the devil, they became enslaved by him. Hence, the devil is called the ruler of the world. He's called the prince of the power of the air in another place because he enslaves the entire world. The whole world is in the clutches and grip of this mortal enemy. He's not just snipping around the edges. He actually has the world in his grasp. Do you get that? I mean, believer, do you really, really get that? This world is completely in the grasp and clutches of the enemy. Colossians 1. Paul says, for he, Jesus speaking of Jesus there, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. It's a dominion. It's a kingdom. And brought us into the kingdom of the uh, of the son he loves. The tragic consequences of the Edenic fall, Eden, the the fallen Eden with uh, Adam and Eve, is that mankind is in bondage. Look at what John says about that. In 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And he dominates their lives, and that is why neither acts of parliament nor the pronouncements of the UN have or ever will solve our problems. And that's why I quoted uh, the General Secretary of the United Nations, Yu Thant, who was uh, incredibly puzzled, and he addressed this issue and said, how come it is with all our education, all our advancement, all our legislation, we have not been able to make any improvement in this area? That's why the Bible actually has an answer. It not only has an answer, it has the answer. And it's the only one that makes sense. Our starting point is that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And that's what this passage in Ephesians chapter 6 is all about. So why would, let's just stop for a moment then and ask this question, why, why God allows Satan to attack us in the first place? I'll only deal with three of the five I have on this. Here's reason number one, to bring mankind to their senses. While man may be Satan's slave, Satan is God's slave, and God uses, can use him to bring mankind to their senses. For example, Judges chapter 3, in verse 7 to 9, it says the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says they forgot how they did it. They forgot the Lord their God, served the Baals and the Asherahs, and the, the result was the anger of the Lord burnt against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushion, Rishatham, king of Aram, Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. And then it says this, But when they cried to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. That is the theme song, the refrain of the entire book of Judges. This is repeated over and over and over, seven times in the book of Judges. How gracious on God's part, wouldn't you agree? No, no, listen to me. That's gracious. You say, oh, that sounds, uh, what a mean God. No, how gracious is God. And I'll tell you why. The alternative is to be forever banished from his presence in hell. Here's the problem in our thinking. We're so tied to this present world. Isn't it convenient that we live in the West? Where we have so much, we think this is about as close to heaven as you can get. If we lived in most of the world, in many parts where I've traveled, we'd actually be looking forward to heaven. But God does these things, allows these difficult things in us to get our attention. This isn't heaven, this is earth. Our time here is just a blink of an eye. It's a fleeting shadow. Those of you that are my age, 60 or more, you know it went like that. Is it true? It's a fleeting shadow. This is just preparation for the real thing, eternity. And so God uses whatever will help us draw to, help to draw us to himself without violating our will. And more about that in a minute. Reason number two, to punish sin. Not only to bring mankind to their senses, but to punish sin. Letting Satan crack the whip over man is one way God punishes mankind's foolish rebellion. It says in Deuteronomy, he says, uh, as an example, Because you did not serve the Lord, your God, with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and thirst, nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Has God destroyed civilizations through the, uh, through the history of mankind and nations and kingdoms? He certainly, most certainly has. And sometimes he just puts an end to it and says enough is enough. You're going you're, you're to destroy everything on this planet. And so He, enough is enough. And so he does something about it. Reason number three. To build his own people. The demons with all their scheming always end up serving ends opposite to what they intend. As Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God takes evil and he actually twists what their intents are and turns it into something eternally good. And we know the story of Joseph there. But take a look at it also in the story of of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says this, he testifies to what happened to him. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of what? Satan, to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am not content with weaknesses, insults. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am... He said, it's good for you, Paul, because you got surpassingly great revelation that I'm concerned about you that you're going to get conceited. And then you're going to lose your reward for eternity. And so Paul says, okay, I see why you have to do it. But I can't, I can't live like this. God says, no problem. I'll give you the grace to endure under that thorn of flesh, whatever that was. See that? So there's no question that demonically inspired persecution at the lowest levels has already begun in the West. It will increase. And God is allowing it to wake up a sleeping church and bring her back to the ancient paths of spiritual renewal. He's going to allow the enemy to do some more attacking, to wake up the Canadian church, bring her to her senses, bring her back to her knees, bring her back to repentance, bring her back to the ancient paths, and bring her back to renewal. Because that's the only way we have any chance of having impact on this godless society and culture. It's not going to happen through our really cute little evangelistic efforts and strategies. Fooey on them. We've got to do it Bible way. We've got to see people's lives changed and transformed and then other people, they take notice. But to get him to that place, God's got to awaken us. Amen? Yeah. So, you ask the question, why doesn't God simply remove evil now? I've only time to deal with one reason. And this is how we're going to end. Have you ever noticed that if you take out one evil, another one springs up to take its place? For example, Iraq Saddam Hussein was removed. Americans went to take him out. And now they've got ISIS. I think there's some that are wishing now they had Saddam back there. You know what I mean? I'm not saying he's good. Oh, no, no, he's evil. Wicked. Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, they took him out, and now the Westerners all had to flee the country. It doesn't matter what head of evil you take out, another one just comes right back up. It just pops up like weeds in a garden. Isn't that true? In fact, if God were to remove all the evil right now, He'd have to remove mine and yours too. You say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" whoa right? Mine isn't that bad. Well, let's talk about it in a minute. <laughs> some are saying, "Let's not." <laughs> Did you know that some of history's monsters came from homes in which they experienced abandonment, neglect, or a so-called absent father? Now, that doesn't sound as bad as the monsters, does it? But it's something we can all identify with. So you'd have to remove that evil as well as it contributed to the greater evil. And those parents were acting like that in reaction to neglect or stuff done to them, so you'd have to remove that generation's actions or neglect too. Let me use another example. Uh, um, as I told you, in, uh, as I say in session one, whenever I lead uh, Set Free Retreat, in session one, I tell a story, and I don't go into details, but I say that Fran and I committed premarital sex. And I say that in a set free retreat. We engaged in sex before marriage, and that gave a foothold for the devil, according to Ephesians, in our family, and it did have devastating consequences in our children, two of them in particular. And the Holy Spirit showed it to me years later, and friend, later, that it was because of the sin we committed. Hmm. We believe the lie. It won't harm anyone because it's between two consenting adults. That's a lie from the enemy. He's, he's, He's tricking you. He's saying, ah, don't believe what it actually says there. The world's right about this one consenting adults. But it ended up hurting our family later on. So if God removed all evil, he would have to remove Fran and I too. Would you agree? You don't don't like where this is going. That's why you're not answering. (laughs) How many of you chose to commit some sexual sin and today it's killing your family or perhaps even your ministry if you haven't dealt with it? The truth is that if God were to remove evil, he'd have to remove you too. Every generation would be removed till you get right back to Adam and Eve. So removing evil isn't the answer. So let's consider something else then. Why did God allow evil to occur in the first place? You say, he should have prevented it in the first place, then we wouldn't have this problem. Well, let's look at that. Here's a problem with, uh, with that thought. To prevent evil, you'd have to remove choice. Would you agree? If you're going to remove evil, you have to, the, the ability to commit evil, then you have to remove choice. That's why God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Eden. Not to tempt humans, but to give them a real choice. They could eat from all the things in the garden, except one tree. No, that's the tree they would take. Does that sound like evil? Always. You see, if you don't have choice, you can't have love. My grandkids, I love them. 17 of them. When I walk in the house, I'm not exaggerating, uh, after a church service and they're there, once, when they hear that I'm there, I don't know why they do it, but they're so sweet, they come running to me in groups and they hug my legs. Now, I'm going to tell you how that makes me feel real good doesn't that make you feel good you know why because i don't announce i don't come in papa's here and i say you should come and hug my legs so they begrudgingly and obediently reluctantly come over and hug my legs can we go play now is that love is that love no it's not love that's that's coerced. If it's coerced, you can't have love. It has to be a choice. And in that case, uh, it, 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 w- it wouldn't be love. You wouldn't have humans made in the image of God who choose to love God back. You would be left with robots, and God didn't want robots. That is one of the things that will make heaven such a wonderful place. Heaven will only be populated by those who really, and of their own volition, loved and love the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not going to be anybody else in heaven. He forces himself on no one. And that's why heaven will truly be a place of love. And then removing evil isn't the answer for the time. Uh, so then, removing evil isn't the answer for the time being, though scripture is full of promises, that it will be dealt with soon. You can't, you can't remove it yet. So then for the purpose of this lifetime then how does God deal with evil? Well let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 it says I'll put enmity between you and the woman, Satan and the woman, which is and between your offspring and hers, he the seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush your head and you devil will strike his heel. All biblical prophecy springs from this first mother prophecy. All of it. The partial fulfillment of this took place at the cross, as we'll see in just a moment. And the complete fulfillment will take place when the devil and his followers will be cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20 and verses 10. But back to what happened on the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Follow me carefully. No longer could the devil and his demons keep people enslaved against their will. That's what it's talking about here. Jesus affirmed this when he met Paul, who was journeying to Damascus. He said, I'm rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light, and, here it is, from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Jesus, listen to me very carefully now, Jesus didn't only uh, or die only to pay for yours and forgive your sins. He did that, of course, but that wasn't the only reason. He also died to rescue you from the dominion of Satan. And what is the condition of this? You choose to receive him. There's love again. He won't foist himself upon you. You choose it. And if you don't choose it, you say, I'm sitting on the fence. You've chosen. You can only choose for or against. There is nothing in between. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, actually the word is exousia, power. The King James Version uh, translates it As power and I think it's much better word to become children of God you can't just walk out of a fortress keeping you cap that's keeping you captive can you it takes power to get you out of a fortress that's enslaving you it takes some kind of external power to do that in the context of speaking about Satan Jesus said exactly that he said no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. Jesus said that exact same thing. And it takes God's power to deliver you from Satan's kingdom and bring you into the kingdom of light. And that's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the what? The power, or the word behind that is dunamis, dynamite, of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, He springs you free from Satan's enslavement by the power of the gospel if you choose to receive it. That's how he does it. But because of the love issue, you have to choose to receive this. It isn't foisted on you. You may refuse God's offer if you like. So how does God deal with evil then? And here... I, I i i work i, I worked in crafting this next uh, slide please yeah here it is how god deals with even present uh, evil presently god doesn't take evil out of the world rather he offers to take you out of evil's grip out of satan's kingdom of darkness that's how he does it. that's how he deals with evil because if he takes evil out of this world You don't have choice. There is no such thing as love. And heaven will be a lousy place. It'll be just like earth. And so he solves that dilemma by offering to take you out of the clutches of evil. Oh, what a brilliant strategy. Amen? It's brilliant. Now, let's go back to where we started earlier in the message, the story of Stephen's conversion and subsequent deliverance. For months leading up to his conversion, Stephen had wanted to become a Christian. But he felt bad for the life he had led up to, the po- up to that point. That, by the way, is true repentance. So hoping to make himself more acceptable to God, he tried to reform himself, but no matter how hard he tried, he simply couldn't change. Then Chris, his brother, our executive pastor, Gave him a CD with a song, Come Just As You Are. Stephan drove home from work one noon hour playing the song. Alone in the house and weeping, he fell to his knees and cried out to Jesus to save him. And he received Jesus. And right there, Stephan was given the power to become a child of God. Now what does that mean? Now you got power to become the child of God. It means that Stephen became a co-heir with Christ. Now, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. What's the significance of being a co-heir with Christ? Well, did the devil tempt and attack Jesus? We know he did. And Jesus said we could expect the same in John 16, However, we now have available to us the weapons and armor necessary to war against the enemy, just like Jesus did. And in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul said the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so, back to the story. When the demonic forces attacked Stephen, I picked up spiritual weapons like the word of knowledge through hearing God. I used a prophetic Rama word to tell the enemy to let him sit down. I then had him begin to confess sin, which weakened the foothold of the devil had on him. Sin gives the enemy a foothold. And I again used a prophetic word to tell the enemy to loosen his tongue so that Stephen could confess sin. And there's other weapons, prayer and fasting, as we heard on the testimony, breaking uh, uh, bondages, meditation, and, and um, inner healing, and on and on and on. God gives us weapons, and he gives us armor, which we're, the armor we're going to be talking about over the weeks to come, to deal with these things. Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God. He didn't say, sit idly by and just look at Jesus, and he'll take care of it. No. He says, put the armor on. He says, take up the weapons and war against the enemy. You and I, you see, you don't just get saved and then sit idly by, and, uh, by till the by and by. You're in a war for your life. You're in a war for the life of your family and you're in a war for the lives of others. And God has given you the gospel, which is the power of salvation to set you free from the kingdom of darkness if you choose it. Once you do, He gives you weapons and armor for you to use. You must learn to use them. And then you must actually use them. Just coming to church and sitting Sunday after Sunday is not going to train you in the use of all the weapons. You're going to have to go to the retreat. You're going to have to go to the Set Free retreat. You're going to have to go to the Empower retreat. You're going to have to go to the Hearing God Seminar. You're going to have to go to Cell. You're going to have to get in the Word. You're going to have to learn how to meditate, how to pray, how to listen, so that you can employ these weapons. You can't just pray and expect Jesus to do something. You have to engage using all the weapons he's made available to you. And I want to say this. Oh, the manifold wisdom of God. Oh, how unsearchable the riches of Christ. You may be here this morning, And you've been sitting on that fence. You haven't made a choice for Jesus yet. He will not force himself on you. That's a choice you're going to have to make. You're going to have to choose whether you're going to hug his legs. He will not tell you you must come and hug him and love him for eternity. He won't do it. And so he offers to set you free from the kingdom of darkness that's enslaving you right now. He offers that. He offers to come into your life and give you a whole new start and begin you on an eternal life kind of journey. If you're here this morning and you haven't done that, I invite you right now, we're going to say a prayer together to ask Jesus to come and do that. And for you, Christian, who have been playing a game, sitting on the fence, and you're not learning how to use the weapons, you are an open door for the enemy into your family. And you're, and the enemy is doing stuff in your family and in your workplace and in your ministry because you will not pick up and learn how to use these things. Why don't you, as we're praying, why don't you confess that to God? Say, God, I'm done with sitting on the fence. I'm done with playing church. There's too much at stake. There's a war on it's time to get involved. Amen. But you who haven't received Christ yet, this is the beginning of a great journey. He won't set you free. Why don't you follow me in this prayer? He will forgive your sins. He will come and begin to give you abundant life, but He will also set you free. Begin a discovery of being set free. Church, would you follow me in this prayer? We'll pray it to the Lord. Dear God, Thank you for bringing me here today. I didn't know I was going to be confronted so directly. But I'm really glad, Lord, that you've challenged me today. Not because you're mad at me, but because you love me. And right now, I choose you. I choose to receive Jesus into my heart. Lord, I want that forgiveness of sins. I want the removal of the guilt from my past. And I want to be set free from the enslavement of the enemy. Dear Jesus, please set me free. And teach me how to use those weapons you have to war on behalf of others. I choose to hug you now. I love you, Jesus. Amen. You just prayed that prayer. You meant it. You just got off the fence. And you just got delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Amen. God bless you.